Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. This week, you've joined Panel Beater, Dr. Sharma and Neo Natal. Good morning to you, gentlemen. Good morning to you. Good morning. Doing well. This is our first show back for 2020. It's good to be back. How Summer exciting. was good? Yeah, it was. It was good. It was nice and hot in Alice Springs. Uh, so this is a weird summer, honestly. Like, was it summer? Was it winter? I don't know. I don't know what was going on. The fires came early. We're supposed to be having fires now, but no, yeah. we had them in November, December and early January. And yeah, it's a bit topsy-turvy. It has been, it, 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 and you know, I've never had weather discussed so much and so passionately before. I mean, we do that enough in Melbourne, you'd think, but no, this was a, a whole new level of, uh, of awareness and consciousness about weather and climate. Weather, and I think, you, yep, you just alluded to it then. I think the other good news, if there's an upside, is that people started talking about this in relation to science in a way that we really probably, in a public conversation hadn't had that's right and even some publications famed for not talking about it in an evidence-based way really kind of turned on a dime um which better late than never um i'm not going to give them too much credit yet uh because i don't know how substantive they've been but but it has been the small silver lining in the sad saga and the, the contortions they're going through to not say that this is a change of position you know, if I'm thinking of the oh, media outlets that you're talking about. I mean, the, the most <laughs> angering thing was not to say, well, we believe that, you know, anthropogenic climate change is real. It's this the this bold-faced statement of, uh, we've always said that's what this is. In fact, the, the, the second that it happened, that uh, Keith and Joshi uh, uh, on, on Twitter just posted link after link after yeah. link of, uh, no, you said the opposite for a long time now. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, with all that, and uh, it's been quite a week, coronavirus is um, still... I woke up to the news this morning that uh, there are up to now 76,000 cases reported Mm -hmm. around the world, and most notably with that sort of figure emerging is the surges outside of China, so China's still going great guns. Um, But uh, this morning I was reading about uh, Iran, uh, South Korea and Italy, um, like a massive spike, a couple of hundred uh, in the last 24 hours or so. So scientists, governments, businesses, universities all around the world are really trying to grapple with this and leaving, you know, Joe public, Joe and Joanne public, wondering just how scared we should be. Still a bit of mystery. And it's a tough one because uh, when I listen to the world experts, leaders on, on this, even they're saying, well, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, by the same token, there's a lot to be optimistic about. Uh, uh, in uh, University of Queensland have announced that they're looking forward to, to phase one trials. They've had some breakthrough in terms of the vaccine yeah. that they're trying to develop. So hopefully some good news on the horizon Fingers there. crossed. Um, good news. Neurosurgeons, neurosurgeons <laughs> never cease to amaze us, do they? Did you catch the news during the week that they were... Uh, but they performed an operation to remove a tumour while the patient played the violin. Mm. Ah, yes. Now, I had a uh, slightly salty uh, tweet uh, on my feed uh, from someone saying... uh, 
Uh, fair enough, neurosurgeons are doing a good job there, but the real star here is the anaesthetist, and I think they're right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You think about it, really. There we they're go. the ones who are keeping the patient awake yet pain-free and functional enough to do what they're doing. Good point. And they are yeah. spot on. Good point. Any reactions from the neurosurgeons on Twitter? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know what, honestly, when the anaesthetists start talking, everyone kind of shuts up because they, they do it rarely, but when they uh, do, they're usually spot on. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a Melbourne dentist this week who claims he was defamed uh, by a uh, an anonymous online troll on one of those rating systems, and he's convinced a federal court judge to order technology giant Google to unmask the disgruntled customer so that he can launch legal action. See, this is quite dangerous. Oh. This is... Uh, if your healthcare providers are able to demask you on uh, anonymous rating services and then potentially you have to go back to them for yep. your healthcare services, it's quite a, a slippery slope. It is. Uh, now, I imagine the threshold's actually quite high in order to be able to do that. So I don't know the particulars of this case, but uh, not too long ago, a Melbourne plastic surgeon was able to do the same thing. Uh, and the claim there was, this is uh, completely vexatious. Yeah, right. and, uh, and, and so that was actually quite justified uh, as the courts saw it. So hopefully that threshold remains reasonably mm-hmm. high, but who knows where, what the right amount is. And did you know today, this is uh, in prep for your next pub trivia, did you know today we celebrate the anniversary of the day in 1954 when the first mass inoculation against polio occurred? Mm. How about that? We've got more radiotherapy news uh, coming up in just a moment, but uh, ahead on the show, three GPs involved in some way with the show this morning. The first of those GPs is, of course, our GP in residence, Dr. Sharma. Woo-hoo. <laughs> and about 9.15, we'll have our second GP of sorts, uh, Dr. Karen Hitchcock, who yay. many of you will, yeah, yay, will know from uh, her writing in The Monthly and elsewhere. Dr. Hitchcock's just released a new book, uh, The Medicine, a Doctor's Notes, a collection of essays from the front lines of general practice and... Um, uh, even later, at about 9.35, uh, we'll be joined by Elizabeth McCarthy, who's no stranger to most of you. Uh, very, very, very many of you will know her uh, from all sorts of Triple R hosting and presenting over the years. We're thrilled to have her with, her with us to help us discuss our third GP, that of Gwyneth Paltrow and her Ooh, organisation, yeah. <laughs> Goop and Goop Lab, um, which uh, is... Uh, Garnishing your Netflix subscription at the moment. Um, there'll be some time for some toe-tapping music, along with a whole lot of other radiotherapy goodness. Uh, Kieran, um, you've been running a poll over the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, just uh, give us an update on where that's going and what people can do before the end of the show. So head over to uh, Radiotherapy's Facebook or Twitter to check out the question, which is based around how many people are attending uh, their general practitioner's with previous, previously Googled symptoms. Uh, you can vote in the poll and we'll uh, discuss the answer at the end of the show. Brilliant. Thanks for that. Um, but as, uh, di- uh, as tradition dictates, let's go to the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. All right, Dr. Sharma, something's caught you your eye on the news. 
That's right. So this week it was announced that the Victorian government is making vaccinations compulsory for doctors, nurses in hospitals and paramedics as well. Uh, and uh, I've only had two types of reactions to this, the first being an enthusiastic, fantastic, and the second one being, what? Yeah. It wasn't already mandatory? Yeah, that's right. I'm that was mine. I'm definitely in the second camp. I was absolutely shocked. And in fact, there's actually some really good reasons as to why it's probably taken so long for this to, to, to be mandatory. But just quickly, so the bill was introduced in Parliament this week and the new laws, according to the government, mean that the healthcare workers must be fully immunised against the flu each year, as well as whooping cough, measles, chickenpox and hepatitis B. And so up until now, uh, the Victorian government has encouraged a comprehensive vaccination policy at workplaces, but that doesn't mean it was legally required for the workers to actually do. And I really think that the reason why that has not been a requirement so far is up until now, doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers have been pretty good with this mm. stuff. For example, if we look at something like the, the flu vaccine, something that you need to get every year, the government target had been 84% of healthcare workers. Well, it was already, without being mandatory, at 88%. And I imagine it would be even higher wow. for all the other diseases. So you can imagine why there was no you know, need, but I think it's nice to bring it up to speed with things like no jab, no play. It's just yep. a good message. Um, the other really fantastic thing about this is it's not just people who uh, are directly involved in healthcare, but also people uh, working in the hospital, such as orderlies and cleaners and just other staff working as well, and aged care facilities as well. So it's quite meaningful legislation in that way. Dr. Sharma, is there any room for conscientious objectors? Ah. Great question. So I looked at the bill specifically, and the wording is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's only medical exemptions allowed. Religious or cultural practices or beliefs are not a basis for an exemption. Wow. Yeah. It's so great to just have that in ink. Wow. It's interesting in a sense, given the way you know media tends to bend towards issues, that it hasn't got more attention. Uh, it, I'm, it's one of those funny things where community sentiment about this on the whole mm. has actually been leagues ahead of mm. yeah. the, the discussion and debate about it because the whole point of the discussion and debate is you get this uneven representation of fringe views. It's actually not how the community feels. And is this effective immediately? Uh, the, the bill's been introduced. I'm not actually sure if it's actually been passed yet, but I don't imagine there's going to be much opposition to it at all. Mm. No, no, no. Well, it, it makes sense. The onus has been previously on the hospitals and the institutions to uh, set these vaccination requirements. Why not have a Victorian or even a federal uh, requirement that it gets done? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think it makes things a lot neater. Does it cover students, neonatal? Uh, we have... We have pretty much the exact same requirements done by the university and it's pretty much no jab no play if we don't get vaccinated we don't no get jab it. no study no yeah. play for medical <laughs> students <laughs> guys we've got a chock-a-block show so let's move along thanks for that dr sharma you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Um, you're with uh, panel beater, Dr. Sharma and Neonatal. And we're joined um, on the line from uh, Sydney, I think. We'll find out in a minute, um, by Dr. Karen Hitchcock. Karen's a general physician whose work, uh, whose work is focused on pain, fatigue, medically unexplained symptoms and obesity, among other things. Many, many of uh, our listeners will have come across um, Dr. Hitchcock's work in the monthly, um, quarterly essay, I believe, and elsewhere. 
Um, and Dr. Hitchcock also happens to be, and we'll speak about this, uh, happens to be one of the first authorised prescribers of um, medical cannabis in Australia. We've Dr. Hitchcock joining us to discuss her most recent book, released just this month, titled The Medicine, A Doctor's Notes. Um, and as the title kind of suggests, it's a collection of essays across about a dozen themes, and we're going to do our very best to cover as many of those as possible this morning. We have Dr. Hitchcock on the phone from Sydney. Good morning, Dr. Hitchcock. I'm not in Sydney. Ah, I'm where are you? I'm in the country. You're in the country. I'm in the Macedon Ranges. Oh, lovely, yeah. lovely. I, I escaped the city. <laughs> well done. Um, thanks so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to our conversation. We've um, uh, been taking a, a deep dive into a lot of the essays, um, and it turns out that much of what you cover in the book is sort of the scope of radiotherapy, so we're, we're, we're not lost for things to talk about. Um, perhaps I'll kick off, though. One, one area of particular interest to myself is, is the way that Big Pharma operates. And uh, in one of your essays uh, titled Pills, 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 you talk about some kind of dilemma, some moment where you gathered your thoughts and um, sort of started to try and join the dots between the approach that Big Pharma was taking to research and commercialisation of, of pills and what you were experiencing firsthand with the needs, as you saw them, for patients. Yeah, yeah well, I, I guess I started to feel that uh, a treatment had become to mean an encounter between a patient and our script pad and uh, that pills were uh, becoming these uh, talismans that were supposed to fix everything, misery, uh, socially generated miseries, um, uh, despair, uh, things that would require a social worker, a psychologist, mm. a rehab, a job, home help, uh, you know, an right. ear. Um, and pills were sort of standing in for all of those things and expected to fix all of those things, which sort of lets uh, us as a society and government off the hook because we don't need to um, worry about all the social structures that are failing people. We just need to give a pill because that fixes everything. So it's kind of, in a sense, what's that old aphorism? It's confusing confusing action and movement. So so long as something's being done, we think, whatever that is, that it is actually um, meaningful action. Um, but it seems not to be the case from your perspective. No, I think that often... I mean, how, how can't, can't cure uh, a, some, an, everything. A pill can't cure a social ill. And often um, we're using pills for... Um, diseases that are preventable or mm. curable through lifestyle means. Could you point to sort of like uh, a case study of your experience in that regard? Um, well, I guess there's lots. I mean, type 2 diabetes is the classic one. We have uh, an enormous number of uh, pretty expensive medicines that we use to treat that and uh, medicine that has side effects. And um, Whereas if a patient can lose very small amount of weight, like five kilos, start to do a little bit of exercise, often their type 2 diabetes will go into remission. The... Um, I've had lots of patients who have uh, um, existential distress um, that think an antidepressant is going to fix that or grief. 
I was just about to um, ask your perspective on that. It seems that um, there's a big swing towards the medicalization of things like grief and um, short periods of low mood. Um, what's your opinion on the management of that with things like antidepressants? Um, well, uh, if you look at the recent large meta-analyses of antidepressant efficacy, they have about a 10% efficacy compared with um you know above placebo mm. and um they seem to work uh in people who have very severe depression so for people who are in a, a grief state i think it's appalling that we would give them a pill and rather than um uh like well, grief is a necessary part of life and it's not something to be covered over even if the pills did cover over which i'm uh, not really sure that they do. I mean, I have walked into hospital wards. I, I have been doing a bit of locoming in the country over the last couple of years, and um, I, I've had wards where every single patient over the age of 70 is on an antidepressant, and most of them don't even know why, and they've been on them for years. And they're um, pills that are quite hard to withdraw from. You get quite severe side effects and that's not something that most patients are informed of when they're uh, in, you know, started on that treatment. Dr Sharma. So getting people well, off them is difficult. Yes, uh, uh, Dr Hitchcock, it's uh, Viom here. I'm also a GP and I guess um, I'm also faced with this dilemma as well. Something like antidepressants are, are something that I feel are both under and over-prescribed, exactly the scenarios that you've described there. Um, so much of that expectation is not just pushed by uh, by medicine, I suppose, but just because of the vacuum, I guess, we have in society about adequate ways to deal with, with grief. So what is it like for you when, say, you, you have a patient who is experiencing sadness, uh, you know, grief in some way that you think is not going to be fixed by a pill? Like, how do you find that conversation trying to... Uh, to ask them to engage with, with you know, other means to deal with this is that do you find that that's easy to do a patient is receptive to this or do they you know, want to fix uh, very, very occasionally I, um, I think in that essay I wrote about one patient who just demanded the pill even though when she went uh, on a retreat she would feel instantly fabulous again And um, but m most of the patients who Look, I, I'm a physician, so I have an hour with a patient, which is a very different scenario. It must be incredibly difficult for GPs who have a much shorter period of time in general with their patients. So um, I, my first approach is just to shut up and listen to the, the person and just hear them. Often people just need somebody to give them their full attention for an extended period of time and just listen to what they're feeling. And I don't know, uh, perhaps if... if debilitating to a large extent in their life and they don't have many social supports I, I either I can see them regularly or I can refer them to a good psychotherapist who will um, help them find strategies to cope in the grief period it's pretty extraordinary that we this is probably the first time in human history that we've prescribed medication to people who have uh, had big losses in their life it may be that somebody's feeling um, f full of despair because they've lost their job or they're um, encountering larger physical debilities as they age. And I, I think that those, those things are ludicrous and cruel to um, give somebody a pill in those circumstances. 
circumstances when really what we should be harnessing are social supports. Mm, it's a very good point, Karen. Um, now, changing tact a little bit, in your uh, essay, Drugs on Medication, Legislation and Pleasure, you have a quite detailed experience of personal drug use, flaws in medical marijuana in Australia, um, pill testing, addiction treatment of psychiatric addiction treatment of psychiatric conditions with recreational substances. It's uh, quite a lot to digest in, in one essay, but you do a pretty excellent job. Uh, I'd like to ask your um, your opinion on the the more reluctance of. Uh, political bodies to accept pill testing in Australia and the ramifications it's having? I think it's completely unethical and outrageous that pill testing is not allowed. It would definitely save lives. Most of the deaths in the, um, <clears throat> the music festivals and dance parties are from uh, contaminated substances. I mean, things that shouldn't be ingested. People are taking what they... they uh, they don't that, like they, they take something that they think is MDMA and it turns out to be some novel chemical that has terrible effects in the body. So I mean, pill testing will save lives, and um, the response to that uh, from the government that pill testing is going to encourage people to take drugs is is ludicrous. People are going to take drugs. We have taken drugs. For all of human history, we love to change our um, state of mind and our uh, consciousness. I mean, even alcohol is used for that mm. purpose. So um, to try and live in a bubble and say, oh, we're just going to stop people um, using drugs and not even educate them properly about drugs. I mean, the things that... my I have 14-year-old twins and they come home from school from their, you know, drug education and they've just been told just completely non-evidence-based, non-factual information about all of the drugs. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're on Triple R Radiotherapy with myself, Panel Beater, Dr. Sharma, and Neonatal, and we're talking to Dr. Karen Hitchcock, who's recently released a new collection of essays titled uh, The Medicine, um, A Doctor's Notes. Um, just picking up a little bit on what you were talking uh, about there, or alluding to with regards to science and uh, policy. Um, if there's a thread right through all of the essays, it's that tension between the politics of an issue and the policy making and the science, isn't there? And um, I guess we're talking about pills and drugs, uh, but it could equally apply across to a number of the other issues you address. Um, if, 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 if to perhaps oversimplify, but not too much, I think there's decisions to make about whether we're dealing with a health issue or whether we're dealing with a criminal justice issue, and. For most of recent history, it seems the treating these things as a criminal justice issue rather than a health issue is winning out. Would you say so? Do you, like drugs, you mean? Yeah, well, with, yeah, drugs in this instance, yeah. Yeah, well, that, I guess that's what we are doing. Uh, if we don't allow pill testing and uh, we're arresting people for, yeah. uh, you, you know, I, I have a cannabis uh, clinic now and... Um, uh, 
a lot of my patients come because they've been uh, acquiring street cannabis to treat their MS or their pain or their insomnia and they are not wanting to have to engage in what is essentially a criminal activity and so they come to me so that it can be uh, medically prescribed and they don't have to worry anymore. Uh, now, Dr. Hitchcock, uh, your book is just full of these fantastic uh, short stories and essays. Uh, probably the one that stood out to me as a treating doctor is uh, Do No Harm, which begins with this very arresting sentence, a few weeks ago I killed a patient. And uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, I mean, that, every every doctor, you know, the, the heart just skips a, a beat if you've read anything like that. And you, you talk beautifully about the retrospectoscope being this medical instrument that a doctor, you know, uses to, to view their past through um, and yet that's you know quite often an, an unfair thing to do considering the realities of what this job is like there's this beautiful line that it's probably not, I don't know if it was meant as a joke by your friend who was counseling you who said uh, you're a doctor not a naturopath so you've got to treat people which I, I thought was hilarious but it just shows how much is part of the job uh, how, how do you find uh, you can kind of reconcile uh, you know, all of our whittlingness to, to view ourselves and our acts through a retrospectoscope and you know, do you, how do you make your peace with that? Well, in that particular situation, I, um, the patient had a clot in his leg and uh, the recommendation in the guidelines and from the um, haematologist were to anticoagulate him, you know, thin his blood, and I did, and he then uh, consequently uh, bled out in, uh, and died. Um, and uh, so the, retros- the way the retrospectoscope worked in that case was that I uh, went over in fine detail every single, uh, every single thing that I had done and every uh, clinical treatment uh, decision that I had made and asked the question, could I have done something different? What if I had done something different? I mean, it was absolutely horrific to uh, have given a medicine that, that led to the death of the patient and, and it all rested in my mind upon did I need to give that medication or did I not need to give that medication? And I guess um, before I prescribe anything, I think to myself, what are the possible harms this can cause? What if, you know, they had an adverse reaction? But uh, after that incident, I very nearly quit medicine because it just was mm. just the responsibility of having to carry that was very terrible. I was a, quite a junior consultant. And um, uh, if it wasn't for Mike, um, the the colleague in the story, just um, t- telling me exactly that, that we use powerful medications and they do save lives, but they also, um, you also kill people sometimes, not very often, thank God. Yeah, thank God. Um, and not something that most people in their daily life, uh, daily work life, need to need to face. What's the what is in general terms your experience of the uh, support networks around you professionally? When I worked in the big city hospital, the big general medical department, I had a few people who were my supports. But you know your. Um, clinical uh, decisions are up for debate. We have meetings every week, and you know, after that happened, I people discussed whether or not it was appropriate that the patient was anticoagulated. Were there other options? Mm. And so, um, in some ways, your uh, 
um, you just got to be like really tough. Yeah, and, really. Um, there's there's a, there's a lot of lack of support. I think actually, yeah. not only for that issue but for other things. I'm, and I, I was lucky to have a, a small group of colleagues who were, um, you know, all through my career in that hospital who supported me through various difficulties. Yeah, yeah. We're certainly um, the media is from time to time picking up on the mental health of medical practitioners, medical and health practitioners, and and various stresses of that particular workplace. Uh, Doctor Hitchcock, I think it's really important. Mm. I say to, to my junior doctors um, that they have to find at least one person that they can call, and one other doctor that they can call at any time right. and um, ask the most stupid questions. <laughs> Fantastic. There's no That's such thing as a stupid question. And call and say, I'm anxious. Exactly. No uh, such thing as a stupid question. Right. I'll have to call you, yeah. Dr. Hitchcock, sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, I call Dr. Lisa Mitchell. <laughs> she's a geriatrician and she's been my point of call for those sort of questions. Lovely. We're quickly coming to a close, um, Karen. We've got a segment coming up uh, next where we're um, going to be doing a bit of dissection of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop organisation and, you know, the celebrity science and the the pop health movement. Do you see um, patients and others around the health sector um, disproportionately influenced by celebrity advice? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't personally see that, except that I do see in the media that people are influenced by, um, you know, I don't know, Mr. Paleo telling people right. not to get their children vaccinated or, you know, and things like that. Definitely yeah. people are influenced when pretty, beautiful, you know, fabulously successful look like they're bursting with health from every pore of their skin <laughs> tell you to do something. Yeah. Look, um, it's been a real pleasure. Time has flown. Um, the book is out now. It's uh, uh, The Medicine, A Doctor's Notes. It's available at uh, uh, by Black Ink. Is that correct? Have I, is my memory serving me there? Uh, by Black Ink. Um, and widely available. And Dr. Karen Hitchcock, thank you very much for joining us today on Radiotherapy. Ah, thanks for having me. It was fun. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome back to Triple R Radio Therapy with myself, panel beater, Dr. Sharma, neonatal, and joining us um, in the studio right now is the wonderful Elizabeth McCarthy. Now, there's something... We've all got our pet hates and irritations, right? One of those irritations for me is when presenters, hosts, MCs, whatever they go, they say something like, and now somebody who needs no introduction <laughs> and, and then proceed to provide an introduction. So I'm going to deliver my own pet hate. <laughs> so somebody... Elizabeth McCarthy, who needs no introduction to many I need listeners. a whopping introduction. You need a whopping introduction, do you? Um, well, I guess I should mention that I'm not a doctor, uh. I'm a, I'm, but I am a human being. And Could I be Dr. Human for the next 10 minutes on air? Um, it's a great pleasure to be here with panel beater Neonatal and Dr. Sharma to talk about Goop and uh, the Goop Lab and Gwyneth herself. I've been a consumer of Goop 
Scoop uh, since its inception, in fact, when it was just a, a very sort of elegant, simple newsletter that Gwyneth used to post out to whoever once a month and you just signed up to her mailing list. And there were sort of six tips of uh, six, six lifestyle tips and life hacks that, that Gwyneth would impart on her followers once a month. And a friend said to me, you should check this out. So I did. And then, of course, she got venture capital and the whole thing has exploded and turned into a multi-million dollar brand. I think she employs something like 100 people now. Um, I saw valued a quarter of a billion. Does that make Extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. Um, and it really is a high-end uh, lifestyle brand, um, selling things like clothes, fashion, um, beauty advice, relationship advice, financial advice, all targeted to women. And so uh, it's it's not so different from sort of, you know, the history of fashion magazines, I suppose. It's sort of, you know, selling. In the words of Diana Vreeland, the great Vogue editor, who said, sell them what they don't even know they want. <laughs> and that's very much what Gwyneth does. It, it's sort of um, it, yeah, goof, rather. It, it, um, it feeds into female fears and anxieties mm. and as well as offering sort of beautiful things to look at, which is what I guess the fashion and lifestyle industry has done for, for so many decades now. And it's funny you mentioned that comparison to fashion because uh, even the the visual aesthetics of the show we're going to talk about are all these creamy pastel colours mm. and mm. mood music and everything. So just, the aesthetics are just clearly part of the sell here. The, exactly. And the aesthetic of Goop is very much about cleanliness, detoxifying, um, transformation, purification, um, illnesses all around us. We have to be aware of toxins constantly. We have to constantly self-police mm. to make ourselves into uh, purer, better versions of ourselves and sort of, you know, self-optimising ourselves all the time. Dr Sharma just mentioned the show itself. So Goop, there's the Goop Lab, right, and there's the Goop business, and then there's where it's really hit the radar of mo- people who hadn't until now is via this six-part documentary series on on Netflix and that's what you're talking about with the visuals right Dr Sharma exactly right yeah. it, it's hit main total mainstream now mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, through Netflix in a way that you're capturing an audience otherwise you would not be able to yeah absolutely and and the well we go through like so there's six half hour episodes mm-hmm. and the first episode is um the goop staff is getting off their face on ayahuasca <laughs> and having emotional catharsis which you know to my mind that was completely boring if i want to see someone having emotional catharsis on any on any kind of drug i just have to walk down the cbd uh, on, a, <laughs> on a friday night um episode episode two is uh cold water therapy episode three is the very best episode of the lot it's um Sex therapy, and episode four is uh, transforming your biological age. Episode five is energy healing, and episode six is uh, um, psychic healing. Mm. So there's a sort of B grade, what I would think is a B grade sort of psychic healer Mm. who um, communes with the dead and and talks to Goop staff. Goop staff is very much involved; they are the guinea pigs of this, as opposed to Gwyneth herself. I think there's one episode where she actually subjects herself Mm. to some. Um, energy healing, but the rest of it, she's sort of sitting on a couch, looking alternately sort of coy, shy, delightful, mm. and worried. Mm. Yeah, yeah, she's she's acting, right? It would, mm. Is that was your experience of watching her? Maybe. I mean, I never. Uh, yeah, I, I always I always thought she was sort of a B grade actress. Anyway, she certainly knows Charlize Theron or Penelope Cruz or Halle mm. Berry or Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and I think this is, you know, she sort of said from the get go that she started Goop because. Um, what did she say? Something like, um, I, 
I saw the future. My my future isn't just about kissing Matt Damon yeah, on screen. That's right. Yeah. So um, so this is this is you know this is something that she's been completely involved in and is the CEO of. You made a judgment um, when you were taking down. So unlike me. No no no, in a really constructive way. You know you you took us through the six episodes and you were able to identify a distinction between an episode that you thought had some kind of meaning mm. or um, compared to those that didn't. What a what was the characteristic of that episode that for you that distinguished? Um, so the episode, episode three, I think, is um, incredibly important, and it's about um, a sex therapy um, a sex therapist, ninety year old Betty Dodson, <laughs> who basically is ninety years old. She looks like she has not had one day of sexual frustration since the Great <laughs> Depression, Amazing. and she has been um, coaching women in in workshops how to have orgasms, how to get in touch with their own bodies, how to prioritize their own sex life, how to treat their own sexuality and their own orgasms as really important and fundamental to health and well being. So I thought that was extraordinary, and I loved her frankness talking about sexuality and her frankness talking about getting women to look at their genitals. Many women have never looked at their own genitals and and coming together, it's it's hard to talk about sex without sort of punning all over the place, but but getting women to... to, I, I really think the female orgasm is often really elusive to women. It's something that it can take a long time to... Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that episode is really important, episode three, but the rest of it is kind of take it or leave it and um, it, it, it quite boring at times. So although they, in that particular episode, they spoke of um, nerve endings and there was some, some science in there in a way, it was prob- probably the least... Scientific of the episodes, would you would you say that? And maybe that's its redeeming feature compared to the others, which were trying to be scientific in the way they mm. they spoke about psych- psychedelics or they spoke about um, anti aging and so on. Very true. I mean, that was the only episode I think where there wasn't a sort of scientist expert sitting in a chair in the room with Gwyneth and her chief content officer yeah. talking about the science. I mean, even with the psychic healer, they had a scientist sitting next to the psychic <laughs> healer to kind of legitimise the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the issue. The, the way they de facto legitimise it, they call the Goop Lab when there you know, really is no lab. The Pons uh, Institute. Exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the, Pons the, Institute. the famous institute that I'm a, not, not yet a graduate of. Um, and uh, you're referring to, to, to so-called experts and then the problem is whenever they start to intrude upon things that could be legitimately considered scientific they're often just wrong and just downright dangerous. I think, and, and one of the strategies, it seems, Dr. Sharma, is that they do get really renowned experts. So the most notable for me was Volta Longo, mm. right, who was in that anti-ageing one, mm. right, who people talk about future Nobel Prize winner in terms of the work he's doing on, on longevity and anti-ageing. And so Goop and Gwyneth, they get a halo effect out of uh, these really esteemed scientists turning mm. up, yeah? That's right, and uh, and they'll often even quote studies, and so giving kind of the pretense that it's, everything's legit. But, um, in fact, I mean, it's actually the point where I literally had to stop watching this was uh, was episode <laughs> 2, 4 minutes, like 35, roughly. Because <laughs> that's, that's actually where the freeze frame occurs for the, the big sin there. And it's not that I stopped watching out of anger. It's literally I went on this 
two-hour analysis of, of what they were saying. So long story short, this you'll remember this from episode two. It's about cold therapy and this man by the name of Wim Hof who's come up with this breathing technique that helps suppress people's immune responses. And uh, they make this literal claim in words saying that in you know, 2014, 24 healthy people were injected with a, a bacterial endotoxin that's known to cause fever, chills and headaches. And the next slide says that the, the 12 people who had the training by this breathing expert uh, were able to suppress the immune response and avoid symptoms, and the rest were not. Now, I paused there because I went, okay, firstly, like, with, with the setup they were giving all this, even if this is true, that's quite you know, dangerous repercussions if people interpret this loosely. But also I paused and went, okay, if this turns out to be true, I'll have to kind of give them a bit of credit here because they're, they're doing everything right. And over the next two hours, it was just me having a, a breakdown as I'm reading this paper. <laughs> Every part of this is untrue, just untrue. The, uh, the people who did the breathing techniques, they did have the immune responses and did have symptoms. And off the, Oh, you went to the paper? Yes, yep. yes, to the paper. And, uh, and the, the people who supposedly did not do the breathing techniques and you know, had their, their fevers and everything else, um, they actually took away three people from that very small research group because they didn't have enough of an immune response. They're doing all these dodgy, dodgy things. And uh, it's it's, just, it's a total sham, uh, the way they, they referenced it. But it also made me realise that they weren't... I don't think Goop was lying here because that suggests they actually knew what the truth was. They were just... I think they were just saying what felt right and no one actually read the paper. We should point out that at the front end of every episode, there's a a screenshot with text that says this is... um, For uh, information and entertainment. Information and entertainment, something along those lines. Yeah, Yeah. Go see a doctor. But that that is the only disclaimer in the entire episode that's indicating that this isn't for medical purposes and then they spend the next 30 minutes saying this is what you can do to drop your your uh, biological age or what you can do to make yourself a little bit healthier. Or... Mm. So what do we suspect people are doing with it? There's, I, I went to IMDB and Rotten Tomatoes and, mm. and not, un, not unsurprisingly, like it's two or two out of five, whatever. But, but I don't think that's necessarily indicative of the Netflix viewer. What's, what do you do with the information that comes out of something like this, Elizabeth? Absolutely nothing. I, I, I'm, I'm a bad person to market Goop products to because I, I can't afford the stuff that they sell. Right. I can't afford like a $500 cashmere sweater or, or even, um, yeah, any, anything that they sell, I, I can't afford. I do have questions, though, I think, um, for you, Dr Sharma. Mm-hmm. But like when women come to see you as a GP, do, you, do, do they talk to you about their sex lives and... Th- issues that they have with their bodies, say, post-pregnancy or or that sort of stuff? I mean, how intimate does it get when, when you discuss um, female-specific problems with your patients? So that's a good question. Uh, they do discuss it, but not particularly intimately, and I think I suspect that has to, a lot to do with the fact that I'm male. What I will tell you to kind of bolster that argument even further uh, that I think you're trying to make there is they often feel, feel uh, and speak in quite a negative way about the experiences they've had with the uh, the medical uh, industry, mm. uh, with medical professionals, and uh, specifically with post childbirth and mm. how they felt treated by certain doctors and their symptoms were not taken seriously. Mm. Uh, it's certainly been one of my biggest frustrations is actually referring women to the correct services and with pelvic pain how that's not taken seriously 
uh, everywhere from the emergency department mm. to, uh, to to when they're going back to specialist multiple times. So there is a bit of a hole there. I think I think it's really important to remember that women from the age of ten onwards, which is you know around the age we often start to menstruate, between ten and sixteen is when women generally start to menstruate. Is that a lot of us are in pain. Um, some of us are in crippling pain every single month. As Gabrielle Jackson pointed out in her book last year, Pain and Prejudice, the med- medical establishment has trivialised women's pain for centuries. We have been subjected to you know, centuries of medical science that doesn't take pain seriously. You had a guest on this show last week who talked about how a doctor trivialised her first miscarriage. I mean, that was just shocking to hear, and that's in this day and age. So I think that... Things, things that goop cells such as the vaginal egg are far um, easier and more discreet to order off the internet if you have some kind of um, sexual issue, if you're worried about the shape of your vagina, than to go and have a conversation with your GP. That might be really shameful. And so, and also really expensive. I mean, if you're in the US, a doctor's appointment can be over, well, it is over $100. Getting an egg off the internet from Gwyneth's website is like $60. Um, So I think that that Goop sort of markets to this space of anxiety and shame that women have about not, and and suppression of both information and discussion about these long-term issues that women have their whole lives with their bodies. And I'm not saying it's, that we're in pain our whole lives. What I'm saying is that women's bodies change so dramatically throughout their lives Mm. and conversations about that really aren't happening in the culture. You have some sex education at school and then... But sex education needs to happen all throughout your life. You know, you're not going to talk to someone in high school, a woman in a girl in high school about menopause. You're just going to talk about how to deal with, um, you know, maybe being objectified by your classmates and, you know, what to do when you get some blood on your skirt from your period. So to me, these conversations need to happen through women's lifetimes and not be suppressed. I'll also say that in New South Wales last year, they decriminalised abortion in New South Wales last Last year. year. Like, that's astonishing. Mm -hmm. In Victoria, it happened in 2008. So, So women having sort of agency over their health care is, is not a given at all. Mm. And I think the, the one silver lining from this is, you know, th- thanks or no thanks to group, we've now been signalled that there is this big need, this entire area yeah, right. that's been neglected by, by healthcare and medicine uh, for, for decades, for forever perhaps, and mm. it's a real opportunity for us to do the right thing. Yeah, right. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Well, we're coming to the last few minutes of our time together. Um, Radiotherapy. Neonatal, I nearly called, Mm -hmm. I nearly, I just had a blank. Neonatal, you've been keeping an eye on the poll. Where'd we end up? Yeah. What was the question first? Well, the question was, what percentage of patients Google their symptoms before visiting the GP? And the two um, options were 56% and 72%. And across Twitter and Facebook, uh, the vast majority said it was 72%. But the actual response, the actual answer is only 56%. Right. um, With. Yeah, it is quite surprising. With um, those who search the internet for information about illness and health are mainly young, female, and highly educated as a demographic. But two-thirds of the people find this information unreliable, and one-third report confusion after the search. Um, and when questioned about how they deal with this phenomenon, doctors indicated that they feel threatened that, and that their profession 
professional expertise has been disregarded, which is absolutely fascinating. Can, can I just say, I just, I'm really not on board with that. I, I think <laughs> on the, my experience is patients who Google, they, they generally do a pretty good job. The yeah. fact that two thirds of people are saying they find the information unreliable, that's fantastic. <laughs> like the I'm, people can, can have that level of skepticism about things. And younger people, far better at spotting mm. nonsense on the internet than, than the rest. Dr. Chamber, I think I've heard you say that sometimes if a patient comes to you in a really time-restricted consult, um, if they've come with some kind of attempt to understand what's going on from them, that can really accelerate the conversation that you mm. can have in a short period of time. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that people will go to WebMD or something like no, that. No, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at all. It's often quite helpful. Yeah. And in my opinion, it really outlines the consultation with what the patient is actually concerned about. They say, I've found this on the internet. This is what I'm concerned about. Please help me. And it's really quite simple. Agenda's laid out. And also, everything leads to cancer. Yes. Doesn't yes. it? Every Google yes. of every health question it's leads to cancer. It certainly leads to death. <laughs> on that cheery note, we've come to the end of our time on radiotherapy. Um, big thanks to our guest, Dr. Karen Hitchcock, who's in talking about, or on the phone talking to a book about her book, Medicine and Doctor's Notes. The details will be up on the socials. Um, Big thanks to Dr. Sharma, Neonatal, and of course Elizabeth McCarthy coming in to the station on thanks a Sunday. Thanks for having me, panel. Beta. It's been fabulous. Dr. Nick will be in next week. Um, please use the socials. We're on mm. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, to find out all things radiotherapy. Stay in touch with us. Give us your thoughts. Share us your thoughts. Um, check out the podcast. It'll be up in the next day or so. Big thanks to Podcaster Max for that. Um, if podcast's not your thing, you might try Radio On Demand or and do that via the web or the apps. Finally, thank you to listeners and subscribers. Been great having you with us. We'll be back. Uh, this team will be back in a month. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.